welcome to the Man Up God's Way podcast, a show that dives into the real, raw, and relevant issues for men in their faith, life, and community. Now, your host, Jody Birkin. All right, guys, here we are again on another Monday night. My name is Jody Burkeen. I am the host of the Man Up Monday podcast and the founder of Man Up God's Way Men's Ministry, a ministry designed to challenge the lukewarm Christian man to be the man that God has called him to be as a in a personal relationship with him, with their spouse, with their children, servants at church, and then making disciples who make disciples. That's what a man up God's way is all about. And you can check us out on uh, Facebook. You can check us out on Instagram. We, we have uh, over 475,000 people following us on Facebook. We have a private group of 50,000 men uh, that is also on Facebook. So you can search that. We may let you in. We may not. Just depends on who you are. Uh, but we would love to have you there uh, as well. And then we also have, and I'm going to let Fergoza tell you a little bit about our app while I do a few things over here. Fergoza, how's it going, brother? It's going good, man. Awesome. I'm glad to be back in the studio. I'm, I'm we glad you're here. Weeks off, yeah. Yeah. Where did you go? Uh, I was in California. And then I think we did, uh, we had Labor Day. We threw something up for Labor Day. And then you had, uh, we had a random one for last week right we had an opportunity to have someone on that couldn't fit a monday so brad stein as a matter of fact i feel like we have this scene in forever yeah i'm glad you're here brother um yeah so the app uh just kind of briefly go over it so it is a it's basically your way to support man up ministry uh there is a cost to it um basically it is a social media platform it's a place where men can go um have a safe space if you will um, to talk about what's going on in their personal lives, to talk about um, the gospel, share ideas. Uh, there's probably my favorite feature of it is a, that prayer wall that we talked about. Right. Um, just a spot where you can share openly. Uh, I know Facebook is, you know, uh, sometimes a tough spot to to be very vulnerable and open right. because it is very very public which is why we created that small group within facebook right only men are in that group that makes it a little bit safer but even that you know is is still very very public the app itself um, with the bible studies that you've been doing the exclusive content um, not only is it a way to support us and support the ministry uh, it's a great spot to just connect with other men Amen. Thanks, brother. I appreciate yep. you doing that. We also have our Man Up Merch page where you can, uh, it's at manupmerch.com. Uh, you can get all of our merchandise, everything from the t-shirt that you see that I have on to, um, we have amazing coffee right here, uh, which is one of my favorite coffees. It is a good sol solid rock coffee, rock solid coffee, I should say. And then here's our, my first book, uh, called Man Up, Becoming a Godly Man in an Ungodly World. Uh, talks about seven areas in a Christian man's life where they need to man up God's way. And then I also have, which I can't reach over there, Pursuit of a Godly Life, where I walk you through Second Peter chapter 5, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 5 through 12, and the virtues of a godly Christian man. And so that's how we support our podcast. And we'd love for you to to go on to man up merch and help us out as much as possible. So uh, tonight I've got a, a special guest I'm excited about. 
Um, Marcus Ferris uh, is with us in this, or actually not in the studio, but he is uh, with us on good old fashioned Zoom. How you doing, brother? Hey, what's going on, gentlemen? Doing great tonight. Awesome. Well, glad you're here. So you're all the way on the West Coast, huh? That's right. Here in Central Oregon. Central Oregon. Okay. How did you uh, How did you end up in Central Oregon? Oh man. Well, how How long of a version of the story do you want? <laughs> we got all night. We got all night. <laughs> I got to piece it together once in a while and just remind myself. It's sort of like those scenes from Inception, right? Where mm -hmm. main character asks, like, "Hey, do you remember how you got here?" It's like, "Wait a right. minute. What am I doing here?" Yeah. And yeah. So prior to this, I uh, so I've been in Oregon since about the end of 2017. And since then, had lived in Bend, Oregon. Um, if you're not familiar with the Central Oregon geography, you've got sort of like in a shape of a triangle. You've got Bend, that's kind of in the south. You've got mm -hmm. Sisters, uh, which is kind of more northwest. And then Redmond, where I live now, which is kind of a little more northeast out toward the airport. And so I lived in Bend there for a couple of years. Um, and at the beginning of 2020, I got a job offer for Mission 22, where I work now, and moved over to Portland. Um, and that, that actually coincided with a lot of the events that I talk about in my book. Um, and so started up with a brand new program that Mission 22 was rolling out. That company had been around for the better part of seven years doing work in the veteran wellness space. And they, they brought me on board to kind of bring this thing to life. And that was when, so I was in Portland for about seven months for the first two months of 2020. Seemed, things seemed like, like, okay, I'm going to get used to living in Portland. And then we all know what happened there. And then that company just ended up moving to Sisters, Oregon. Um, and so I kind of boomeranged back here to Central Oregon. Um, just can't get away, apparently, uh, which is kind of kind <laughs> of a, a relief um, because growing up, I, I moved probably an average of once every, I don't know, two or three years. My dad uh, really just enjoyed uh, find, figuring out where he wanted to live. It seemed like every right. time we moved, it was like, well, what if we lived here too? Um, so I, I think I might finally have some, some roots in an area for, for more than a couple of years at a time, Lord willing. That's awesome. That is great. So where was your dad in the military or he just, he just liked to move? Well, a little of both. Uh, so he was in the Navy yeah. back in, uh, around the time I was born around the, uh, late eighties, early nineties, and we were in the Philippines. So I was actually born, um, in the Angeles city Philippines outside Clark air force base. And so, you know, if I, if I ever play that two truths in the lie game. It's always, you know, one of the, one of the truths is, Hey, the hospital room I was born in is now occupied by chimpanzees because as it turns <laughs> out, the, the hospital I was born in has been listed in national geographics, top 10, most haunted places on earth. So, oh, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was abandoned in 91 after Mount Pinatubo erupted. Wow. No kidding. Okay. So, so you've moved into the Philippines and, um, we'll get to what I, what I really want to find out is your story. Um, you know, how you, you know, we, we got physically how you got to where you are, but, um, I know you wrote a book. Why don't you tell us, let's start off with just a little bit, share, share the book just a little bit, and then we'll get into what you do for veterans and, um, the work that you currently do. Definitely. So the book was written yeah, I, I kind of alluded, alluded to it for a moment there. I was separated for, from my now ex for about 14 months. And it was kind of in that time where I was really getting challenged in my faith like I'd never been challenged before. And it was one of those moments where it's like, does do you did you believe what you said you believe? And what does it look like to have your Christian faith now that something happened that you never really had a context for before? And so right. in a lot of ways, I had to rebuild my worldview. I had to 
update some of my understandings of what it meant to be a Christian man in this world. And that, Hey, like your marriage is not the thing that defines you not even close. Like it's, it's something much, much bigger. And God wanted to show me that through something that, uh, was, let's say a series of unfortunate events. And so I had, I'd always blog, you know, I, I, did a lot of endurance running when I was in college. I'm kind of getting back into it these days. I did some triathlon for a while and I always enjoyed, I was, I was that one that like, as soon as I was in another social setting right after the race, it's like, Hey, read my blog. You know, like I want to tell you all about how much I suffered during the race. How cool is it? I got my age group. That's great. Um, but anyway, so, so writing was always very cathartic for me. It was much better able to put my thoughts into words. And so during that season, I never, I never thought like, Hmm, I'm going to sit down and write a book and share my story with others. It was more like, what the heck is going on? Like, I need to like figure this out and write it all out. Right. And, and so I kind of, I had a sort of a proto book, I guess, of about 40 to 50 pages or so and started sharing with some of my mentors, some of my friend group. And um, one of them encouraged me like, Hey, you should maybe look at making this a more expanded version. And, and so that's kind of what I did. And so over the course of about a year and a half, um, brought you the, brings you the product that I have now. That's awesome. What's the name of the book? The book is called No Less Faithful, How the Scars of Divorce Reveal the Heart of God. Okay, awesome. That's good. That, 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 that is good. That, that's honestly how my books, uh, my first book started as well. Somebody challenged me to write my testimony. And um, I sat down to write my testimony. And the next thing you know, I had eight chapters or 150 pages. I don't even know what it was. It was chicken scratch at the time. Um, and I found an editor to kind of thumb through it. And the next thing you know, I ended up having a book out of it. And uh, it, that's, uh, that's just the way that God works sometimes. And, uh, it sounds like your story was kind of the same way. So, so you, you ended up writing the book after just a long sequence of things. Tell us, let's, let's start off with, um, you know, when did you come to know the Lord? Yeah. So I'm, I'm one of those kids that I grew up in a Christian household from the South, originally from Birmingham. And when I was probably three is when my mom tells me as my memory is kind of fuzzy around then was really kind of the, I was that typical church kid that invited Christ to my heart very, very early. And I, I can't really recall being in a state where I didn't have some sort of relationship with God. Um, right. Like I said, it, it's been challenged in a couple of ways. There's, it's interesting how there's, you, you hear that and it's like, oh, that's great. Like there's it's never been a time in a life where he hasn't known the Lord and awesome. There's also, it's, Sort of, it's almost a two-edged sword where you can't really see the other side of like what it's like to go through life without knowing Christ. And it's it's not so much that you would wish that on anyone, but it also kind of provides a frame of like, I was, I know what it's like to be blind to that truth. And so in a sense, it served me because there was a lot of work that God had to do in my heart and he's still doing now, I guess. And so he called me out early, I suppose. But you know, there's also a sense in which my understanding of the world, my interactions with others was very immature for a while. So mm -hmm. to give an example, when, so I was, I grew up in a Christian school up until I started high school. So we moved to London later on in life as I was a freshman in high school, all I'd ever known were these sort of semi fundamental Christian style churches. And then my worldview kind of clashes with these uh, kids who let's say were not grown up that way. Um, I went to an international school that was composed of only about half of us were Americans. The rest were from all over the place, everywhere from Japan to India, Australia, and, and Britain itself. And I, you know, I, that was kind of the first time where it's like, what do you mean you don't believe the earth is 6,000 years old? I don't, what was <laughs> that? Um, and so that was a, a bit of an awakening. And then, you know, so 
as I kind of looked back on how I was raised and the the sort of transition between, I'll use a term that Richard Rohr uses in his book of falling upward or falling up. He talks about the idea of the first half of life journey and the second half of life journey. And right. for the first half of life journey, you have what he kind of, it's almost like a, a, a soldier that's on guard for you, who's sort of like watching out for your childhood sort of a thing and keeping you safe and protected. So there are important boundaries for that. But then a second half of life journey begins where you have to dismiss that soldier. And often the way I see it is that's what male initiation is for. And so that, that teaches the young man, Hey, look, you're not, your life is not about you. The world is a scary place. Here are all the reasons why it's scary. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And we're going to sort of enact that out in a ceremony that we call a rite of passage, which uh, hopefully some of your listeners have considered implementing that with their, with their kids in one way or another. Right. Um, I, really we, I was just having dinner tonight with some guys from Britain I'll tell another story here in just a little bit, but um, we were just talking about a rite of passage, you know, with our, with our kids. And we were talking about, you know, I, I told them I've never been to Europe, but I really want to go because they've got buildings older there, older than um, the United States. And there's a culture there. There's not much of a culture in the United States, but many cultures around the world have this rite of passage for their, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old sons. And, um, it's, it's, it's literally that moment where they tell them you're a man now, you know, everything from the bar mitzvah, the Jews have to, um, even, um, uh, the Muslims have something where they send their kids out to go kill some, like, and it's just this, this, uh, rite of passage that we don't have in the United States. That's even good. the, I mean, the Romans did that. Everyone yeah. has yeah. done that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Our rite of passage is <laughs> stay in the basement till they're, no more video games. You got to go to college. <laughs> exactly. So sorry about that, Marcus. Go ahead. No, that's good. And I, I think, you know, among other reasons, and we can get into this a little bit later when I kind of reference the stuff I'm up to with Mission 22. I think that's one of the one of the functions of a rite of passage is a sort of inoculation against moral injury. And so this is a topic that I've been thinking about a lot. And it's that idea of that moment where your old, your old worldview, your old sort of philosophy of how things are supposed to act and behave and relate to one another is shattered in a moment because of a thing that you did, a thing that you experienced, a thing that you saw, and you just don't have a context for. And that's what can develop into what the the clinicians will call PTSD. And there's, there's a lot to be said there. But um, suffice to say, for my story, I experienced a moral injury when that when that marriage was lost in, in a way that was like, there, there was a good while during that separation where I was in a certain level of denial of just like, no, that's not actually what happened. No, it's not. It's, it, it can't be that. And, and it, and so it was reconciling the present reality of a, of a sin, both in my heart and in her heart and understanding like, okay, this is what God does. This is how he works these things out. And this is how something like a broken heart can be used as the raw material for something new. Yeah. There's a, not to, I mean, I hate to interrupt your story as you're flowing. There's a really cool, you know, contextual way to, because this is one of the biggest questions that, you know, non-believers will have. They'll say, oh, if we have a loving God, then why did he let something bad happen? Right. And, um, you know, there's, there's two different camps. Well, that was God's will. Um, I always quote my older brother because he's been so influential in my life. He'll always say, uh, no, you know, that's not biblical. It's not God's will for something bad to happen. Um, however, um, scripturally speaking, he will use all things uh, for those who love him. So when bad things happen, like we're in a fallen world, bad things are going to happen. That's just the nature of this world it has nothing to do with God. It just has to do with the fallen, the state of the fallen world that we're in. 
he will still bring beauty from ashes. And it's awesome, you know, to hear stories like yours that come from that to say, hey, you know, when uh, sin comes into our life, when bad things happen, God takes those things um, and uses the enemy's work against him and brings beauty from it. So I'm always encouraged uh, just um, immensely when I hear stories like yours. Yeah. And on that question, there was a book I read during that season by, I believe it was Rabbi Harold S. Kushner. That's basically just titled why bad things happen to good people. Something along those lines. It was written in about the eighties and it was kind of his, his struggle with that whole thing. And there, yeah, there are a lot of ways to go about that, that question. And I think when you ask that question to a Christian, who's never really experienced like really extreme hardship, i.e. myself for like the first 20 something years of my life, then, you know, you, you, a skeptic can kind of understand like, man, you don't understand what it's like to lose someone really close to you. Like you've never had your faith challenged in that way. And you know, the, the, the apologists might say, well, well, how do you know there's anything such as objective badness if there's not a transcendent ideal that we call God or, or something along those lines. And you can right. go down that, that direction. But the other thing too, is that my, so the original title of my book was love is not about O and O W E. And so the the grammar didn't quite work out. People weren't really getting it. And that's <laughs> oh, I, I justifier. But the, the idea was like, hey, you know, when you're in a committed relationship um, or marriage, it's if you love that other person, you let them choose for, for themselves, even if that's to the point of them betraying you. And that's that's the hardest like thing to learn about the nature of love. But it's the closest to Christ's heart as I think you can get. I heard it put once the challenge of Christianity is not loving Jesus. It's loving Judas. Mm, yeah, that's good. So when when you're in your moment of um, separation and you're asking yourself these questions and just trying to, you know, a lot of times I think denial kicks in and you're, you know, you didn't do anything. It was all her. And um, at, at what point did you finally just say, I see what I did now or how did God reveal that to you um, or what I could have done better? Um, were there moments like that in that, in that time of separation? Yeah. i tell you what, one moment that really stands out. So to give a little bit of a context here. So I'm currently in a master's program for clinical mental health counseling, which is kind of ironic because I started out my academic career in engineering at Auburn as an industrial engineer. So you got one profession that's more interested in people than things and another profession that's more interested in things than people. And usually those are on two opposite ends of Absolutely, yeah. So, so go figure, but yeah, so there was something that I discovered during that time of separation when I was really just like, how does a person go from being this person to being someone I don't, I don't recognize? And by the textbook, it was like, oh, she has codependent personality disorder. She's dependent. She goes from one relationship to another and this and that. And then during my struggle, one of my mentors was like, hey, maybe one of the reasons you're struggling so much is you're dependent on her love. It's like, oh, mm. dang it. Check. Uh, and so, yeah, that that was, that was another thing that I had to really come to terms with was like, if there's a betrayal in a marriage, it's very rarely the case that one person is totally at fault, right? Um, right. Not to say that anything you do causes that behavior um, one way or the other. But at the same time, you know, when, when I did a bit of a postmortem, I kind of looked back and like, man, when this relationship got started, I, I didn't adhere to all of my values that I said that I was grown up with. Right. And, you know, like the first time you experience that cocaine hit of like, oh my gosh, this girl's paying attention to me. You know, I have to pursue her at all costs. There were a few voices in my life. I will admit there was one that I sort of brushed off uh, that was, uh, that were saying like, hey man, pump the brakes. Like 
let's let's think about this for a minute and no it was just like this uh there was um yeah there's just like a period of just that sort of puppy love that i got into and it was the first relationship like serious relationship i'd ever been in i was about 24 and um you know there's i i I'm sure many parents kind of struggle with the question of like, when do we let them start dating? When do, you know, um, my parents never really held me back from that, but it was more like, I don't know, I was socially awkward enough to where that wasn't an issue to begin with. Right. <laughs> you were stopping yourself from dating. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, you know, I didn't really, it was, it was probably more to do with me just being unaware, uh, during my college years, but nevertheless, right. um, that's, I think that's why like mentorship of older men to younger men is so dang important because right. fathers, fathers carry so much of the, of the load. It's so hard to prepare the the child for like anything that life throws at them. Kind of going back to our idea of rite of passage, you can't give such specific lessons of like, Hey, when you're 24 and you've just gone to Alaska on your first duty assignment and some girl comes out out of nowhere and you meet her at a triathlon and get all excited and she hasn't really known Christ for much of all of her life. Maybe you need to start thinking about these, right? So I'm not right. blaming yeah. my mentors or, or anything, but it, the the point that I'm driving home here is like how important it is for older men to really counsel and come around like younger men who are who are making decisions without the same kind of context. Right. Exactly. Now, were you um so. You spent that time separated. Did you guys ever try to reconcile after that? Or was it pretty much over after the separation? It was pretty much over. Um, if yeah. if I like if I had sort of more well, during that time, I found in three different individuals some very good mentorship, and all three of them kind of had a different perspective on it. One was like the the next time I see her again will be too soon. Like you need to leave now, cut it off. This is not how marriage is supposed to happen. Right. Two, Two was just sort of a, was a, was an approach of like, Hey, you know, do everything you can. You committed to her. You're technically still married. Um, this is what the Bible says, but you know, it could end in divorce, but do, you know, I'm going to be rooting for the marriage the whole time. And then I had a third party who really just sort of played the middle ground. And so it was kind of up to me to decide. And I, I'll admit that there was, there was a point where I should have enforced that boundary and initiated the process of getting actually divorced finally. Um, and I, but I never did. Um, it was, it was, you know, like I said, 14 months of like deliberating and she actually delivered me a severe mercy by doing it, uh, herself. But, um, yeah, so that man, that's, that's a season I don't envy for anyone, but I will also say it's the season where I grew the absolute most exponentially. Wow. Now were your parents, uh, faithful or were they married or were they divorced? No, my, my parents are still together. Yeah. Still together. Okay. I didn't know if that weighed on you. I mean, you know, just had, like I grew up with between my wife and I, we have 14 marriages with, with our parents. Like <laughs> they didn't like anybody. They just kept marrying and divorcing and marrying, divorcing. But uh, I'm the same way. I just like, don't marry. Just I don't just marry. don't like anybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but that, that was, you know, my wife and I got married without God um, in 1990 we've been together ever since, but you know, the first few years of our marriage, well, the first 12, 13 years of our marriage was all about not following in the footsteps of our parents. But after we gave our life to the Lord in 2003, which was 23 years after we got married. Um, no, I'm sorry. 13 years after we got married, uh, you know, we, we rededicated, gave our lives to the Lord and made sure that our marriage was for the Lord and everything. So, I, I see how, you know, sometimes your parents can affect um, 
you know, some sort of, uh, you know, pressure on making sure that you stay married or not get married or divorce or whatever. So I didn't know if your parents had it, you know, since they're still married, it might've had even a little bit more effect, just the thought process of, you know, growing up in a Christian home, man, I just, you don't want to get a divorce. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to work it out. And, um, uh, I, I, as a pastor, I see this, this happened more than I like. Um, but I do know that God can restore, um, both parties, uh, if they'll let them, you know, um, with or without each other. And, uh, that's the great thing about our God is he does have that grace and mercy. So, um, I, I, I hate that you had to go through it, but you said also that is the, the, the highest point of your spiritual walk. How, how did you see God and how did God move in your life in those times? Oh man. Great question. It's hard to even know kind of where to begin. Like if you've ever been to a sermon or heard some other mentor tell you a story of like, oh man, we needed, you know, $8 and 72 cents. And we were short at the cast register and someone handed us the exact, you know, that right. type of story. Like I had a lot of those. In fact, oh, there, was, awesome. uh, there was one involving money and it had to do with, uh, let's see. So for like six weeks, I went back South just to spend some time with the family and kind of heal my heart a bit. That was a really good trip. Actually. Um, I went back to Auburn and for anyone who gets excited for NCAA football, um, <laughs> about, you'll know about the iron bowl. And so that was, let's see, it was the iron bowl of 2019. Oh man, it was legendary. And I was, I was down there with my family. My brother was in town. He lives in Burbank. Now he's down there working for Netflix. So we don't have a ton of moments where it's like all the families together. And there was a moment where, uh, so my shout out to my cousin, Helen, who lives on the lake there, uh, Lake Martin near Auburn, Alabama. She has seen, had season tickets and knew that me and my brother were in town. She was like, you know what? You, you can have the tickets. Y'all should go. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so we did and Auburn ended up just by the hair there by the skin of the teeth, like winning that game. And it was, I get goosebumps talking about it. And I got to share that moment with my brother. And it was like, like, that was just, it was, I know it's football and we can talk about like, Oh, don't worship the game and don't, don't worship more on Sunday or Saturday than you do on Sunday, this and that. The point was like, it was an amazing experience that was just, it just felt like such a gift. It felt like I was sort of, I, I was able to kind of rehuddle with my team and then get back out at life. And it was sort right. of like, Hey man, you can do this. And it's, it was sort of speaking that in a language that was very specific to me. You know, I've, I've thought about how, how cool is it that God, when, when we talk about God's love and God's provision and, you know, this idea of manna, I talk about a little bit in the book, uh, the provision that he gives you is very specific to you in particular, right? right. So it's, it's not just like, here's a house, here's a person in your life. Here's a, this or that. It's like, no, here's the specific one that I know you child will want specifically like in this time, in this place with this specific, um, you know, nuance to whatever the provision is. Um, so what I'm saying is Auburn won the 2020 iron ball because of me, right? <laughs> <laughs> all because you were there. That's all that matters. Usually when I go to something like that, you know, they end up losing. So I don't know if I'm you just looking bad. Luck. Stay away. Yeah, exactly. I've done that many times with St. Louis hockey. You know, they're getting ready to go to the championship and I'll go to a game. They lose one. So um, I did have a question um, just to kind of reiterate for our listeners, because it sounded like you were kind of moving. You, you briefly touched on this. So she, um, your ex was not a believer, correct? So when we first met, it was, she was not, uh, six weeks into our relationship. So she, she was on the tail end of a divorce herself. And actually okay. the ink wasn't even dry on the papers for wow. that relationship. Uh, and so what she had stated was like, well, 
gosh, that was kind of abusive. Like, I don't, you know, I, I need to take a serious pause on any kind of serious romantic involvement at all. And she met me and started like, she was like, oh man, you're a Christian, you're different, you know, and, and even quoted one of C.S. Lewis's description of a Christian man, I think it was in mere Christianity and attributed it to me. And so it was like, oh my gosh, like, wow, she sees me as a Christian and this is great. Yeah. And saying like, oh, it could only be you. And then I, I had my hesitations because it's like, ah, you're not a Christian and this and that. And, and so six weeks into our relationship, she nominally at least accepted Christ. And then it seemed like everything was working out. And I write about this a little bit in the book. It, it, I was looking for sort of a, uh, a sign, if you will, I guess, uh, I, I was telling God like, Hey, you know, I, I know that there's some hesitations here, but I want to tell her that I love her. And if this is a bad idea, please stop me. And I, looking back on it, it's like, bro, if he had told you to stop, you would not have like you told you. Had <laughs> He's all don't do it. You're like, oh, I hear something. You guys hear something outside. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's nothing. Yeah. Don't <laughs> Well, you know, I only bring it up uh, because Jody was talking about reconciliation and all of the above. And, you know, I've, I've walked, um, I've walked friends through this. I've had um, believers and non-believer friends come to me for advices on marriage. And the, I, ironically, they're coming to the single guy asking them for advice on marriage, which makes no sense. But I think it's just because I'm available. Like, like everybody a, else is a Catholic priest. Yeah. Everybody else is like busy. So they're like, ah, well, golfer goes up. Uh, but the interesting thing that I've seen in a lot of the, you know, the ones where we have two, like two strong faiths, both spouses are attacking it in the same fashion, meaning they're both grabbing Bibles. They're both going to their mentors. They're both trying to desperately reconcile the situation. And I don't know if you felt any type of, you know, um, like, Hey, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what to do. You have three different mentors telling you, but I'm sure it felt like, you know, did it feel like she was pulling away and there was no, you know, um, even shot for that? Or, you know, I don't, I hate to make you relive it, but I'm just curious because I, I taught, I mentor a couple of young kids and I can't stress to them enough. That is one of the main, like, that's the thing you're looking for, whether she's cute or not, that's secondary. Like you're looking for someone who can, um, walk with you towards, towards Christ. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me, I believe it's in Timothy where Paul's kind of talking about qualifications for church leaders never end there. Is he like, Oh, Hey, for someone who just accepted Christ the other week, they should run, you know, your, your lead ministry team. Like, yeah, there, you know, like there's, there's a point to, there's a reason why someone's in that position after having been, you know, around the block a couple of times with their faith and had it tested and proven through hard trials. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is true for spiritual maturity of, of two people joining in, in marriage. And that was a significant mismatch up front. Um, and so I think for her, you know, I, I heard a pastor once tell me like a faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the start. And I, I don't know her heart, uh, you know, only God does. I don't know exactly where she stood with that. Um, and it was, it was kind of heartbreaking, right? Because when you, when you see somebody who went from like, man, I'm confused. And I really didn't like the church because my early experiences were this. And then all of a sudden, like we were in a small group, like we lived in Fairbanks, Alaska. We were within a really awesome small group up there that was just had a heart for God. And it seemed as though it's like, okay, there's some difference in maturity here in terms of like knowing Christ, but it's, we're working this out and it's good. And little did I know that a lot of her relationship with the church, with Christianity had a lot to do. It was almost like a um, like an ego defense mechanism. In other words, I'm going to, it was another pattern of 
So I, I mentioned codependency earlier. And again, like, I don't want to run the risk of like projecting my own because I, I need to, I think all of us have some level of dependency on things that aren't Christ, which is, which is, you know, where, where the work happens. Um, so that's not to say that I don't have something here to work on as well, but with her, there was the, the pattern of codependency and I'll, I'll speak generally on, on what this is, is basically it's, I'm finding my identity in the relationship that I'm in with someone else. And so I'm going to be obsequious to that other person to the extent that I cannot really let my full expression of personality be, uh, un, be exposed. Right. So because if I do that, then maybe something bad could happen. Maybe in the past I did that and I got hurt. And so it's, it's sort of this defense that gets bound up and, and the coping mechanism is just going from one relationship to another, mm -hmm. um, not, not realizing like, Hey, the common denominator is you. And, um, it's, it's just going to happen again and again, if something deeper isn't worked out. And so, yeah. so yeah, it was there, there were kind of, like in hindsight, there were some signs that like why, why are we having our biggest arguments after church? Like, what's that about? And like, oh, wow. yeah. and, and there was a, so there was a moment where out of the blue, she mentioned something about like, Hey, maybe we should consider fostering kids. And I was like, wait a minute. I didn't think you, <laughs> you it was just don't curveball. Yeah. Talking about a curveball. Um, yeah. And so, and so I made the comment of like, well, we should probably be more plugged into the church. We kind of, most of our friends are just sort of triathlon friends, nothing against our triathlon friends, but you know, they're not the type of people that you would have deep conversations with. And right. yeah, um, they're running away from everything, man. <laughs> yeah. And, and all sorts of different methods, um, <laughs> I guess three to be exact, but anyway, so, <laughs> so I, I made the comment of like, we, we, need a, we need a small group, like we had them in Fairbanks. So we were back in Bend at the time and, you know, maybe we need this and that, if we're going to have a, a, a child in the home. And so that kind of made her realize like, uh Oh, I don't believe what you believe about this. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where it got started. And then there was, there was a good, like four or five months where just things were really weird in the house. Um, and there, it was, it was just sort of a, a bit of a, an emotional minefield there for a while. And then, and then finally the bottom fell out and I found out what happened. And so that it all sort of explained it later, but there was, there was a time where she was like saying that she had wished she had died in a plane crash. And it was like, what, what is this? I was so confused. Wow. And so that's what got me into understanding human psychology and into the field I'm in now. Um, that's just, that's kind of one of the ways that God used this, this whole episode of how he sort of transformed me from this sort of engineer nerd to a, a psychology, um, major. Wow. To a brain nerd. <laughs> I like it. So you've, you've taken this, um, what would, you know, destroy a lot of people. I see, I do a lot of counseling and, you know, Fergoza said something a while ago, um, you know, I've never done counseling where two people um, place their relationship with God above each other. I've never had to, I've never had to counsel those kind of people because they have it in the right order. They're both seeking after God. They're both trying to have a relationship with God and they're not, um, they're not trying to find their, their, joy in each other they're trying to find their joy in god now you can find happiness with a spouse but if you don't have it in god you're not going to be happy anywhere else since you've gone through that and since you've seen it firsthand um one are you in a relationship now uh and two uh, has it made you look differently at the next potential relationship 
Yeah. So both very good questions. That's um, I'm single today. Um, right. depending, depending on who's asking. <laughs> well, this is a man's uh, a man's uh, podcast. So Bite the machine. No, no women here asking you. All right, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, I've what, the same mentor that encouraged me to write this first book. Kind of half jokingly, was like, maybe you need to write a book about what dating is like in the modern world, um, because you know, for a conservative conservative Christian white male in a very very blue state, it can be kind of difficult. Um, yeah. and I don't know how deep we want to get into that, but, um, if you want to co-write, just hit me up after the show, we'll, yeah. uh, we'll make a bestseller. Fergoza is going on 75 and he's still <laughs> single. So <laughs> I'm messing with him, but yeah, I, I, you, you heard about, um, Oh, what's his face? Who you, who wrote, uh, I kiss dating goodbye. Um, it was an eighties book that came out. Uh, in the eighties, I should say it was all big Christian, Christian book. And, um, it was a big seller too. I think the dude made millions off of it. And he ended up denouncing Christianity and, you know, writing to the woke mob about how he was sorry that he wrote the book and everything else. So right now might not be a bad time for somebody to stand up for Christian dating. What year was it? It was in the eighties, eighties or nineties, early nineties. Domain, it's coming up. We can just republish Re that boy. <laughs> Ain't got no ownership yeah. after seventy-five years. <laughs> but um, you know, that's not that, Marcus. That may not be a bad idea to really, you know, especially in this day and age, to to give those who are out there searching and looking and trying to figure it all out, you know, maybe the steps that you go through and um, go from there. Yeah, and. I have to choose to believe that it's, I think women are having similar conversations, at least those who, you know, don't, don't have proclivities for all of the current ideological fervor of like, where, where are the good men at or whatever. And it's, it's a tough question. And, and I, I don't think it's the case that it's totally hopeless, although I'll part of my brain tries to convince me otherwise. Um, but in terms of your, your other question of like, how do I approach it now? I've, it's, I've had to ask I'll put it this way. My Christianity boiled down to like, all I know about what I thought before is that I just suffer on the cross with Christ. And then I'm going to rebuild just from that. Cause I don't really know other stuff for sure anymore because my epistemology at the time, the, where I get my source of truth was kind of from, uh, I was one thing my dad did really well with me when he raised me was like, he understood that my brain worked in a very sort of academic logical way. And so he introduced me to apologetics very early. There was a lot of, I remember when we were in London, he took me to some like apologetics thing. It was probably somebody who's super well-known in the field. And I, I don't remember who he is, but right. it was like, I was exposed to that stuff quite early. And so I had a lot of like tools you could say with, with my Christianity, but like where the rubber met the road with how I acted in the world as a Christian was really just kind of thrown on its head. And I think, um, uh, you know, if I may be so bold in saying, I think a lot of the church is trying to figure this one out too of like, we can't, the way that our message presented uh, in today's culture has to shift. And it, it always did, right? I mean, Paul, Paul said, I've become all things to all people. And I think part of that is understanding how to speak the language of the, of the culture. And now, you know, if you dare to speak the truth, you're going to offend somebody, of course. Um, but so as it relates to dating then, so it's like, okay, I had all these qualifications of what I think a good wife should be. Maybe I just need to boil that down to two things. One, do you believe in Jesus and are you wholeheartedly for him? Two, 
how many genders are there? And if you can give me a good answer to both of those. <laughs> all right. We're, we're yeah, Have you guys seen the, there's yeah, a, a TikTok going around of a spelling bee and uh, they asked the, the young boy on stage to spell woman and he asked for, uh, or, you know, oh, origin. origin he's like, it? can you uh, give me a definition? And the guy's like, uh, no, I, no, I uh, just spell the word. <laughs> Here, so-and-so will tell you what that is. Yeah, yeah. He passes her down the line. Or... <laughs> and she backs off it. Yeah. She's... That's a good TikTok. Yeah, that is. It's crazy. Like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to chase that rabbit trail. But, um, but it, it is, you know, just speaking from, from that spot of dating, like we have a very Americanized approach to dating and I'm guilty of this myself. Um, so as, um, as I get older, um, it's very difficult for me to date because I'm meeting a lot of women who are divorced, um, which there's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of times it's still very fresh. It's still very new. You know, we're a couple years divorced and they maybe have children and, man, I always feel like I'm stepping in the way of maybe some reconciliation. Like we had talked about mm -hmm. Jody is like, man, God has done mm -hmm. some amazing things that I've seen. Um, so it's always difficult for me to step into those relationships right. and say, oh yeah, you know, I'll, I'd love to be um, a stepdad, which I wouldn't mind at all. That'd be awesome. But I don't want to step inside, you know, and block any type of reconciliation. So that's always been yeah. difficult. And then the, you know, the younger crowd just isn't, and it's so hard to connect with the chaos that right. ensues, you know, really what you're talking about with, um, you know, the culture. Yeah. Mark, Marcus is correct, especially on the first point. I mean, you have to make sure that you're equally yoked um, in a relationship. You know, first of all, your your understanding of who Jesus is and what he means to you is key and paramount, you know, making sure that they do know that they know Jesus Christ and that they are saved and, uh, and also giving them the assurance that you are as well and that you understand what that means. And then, you know, as you're what I would call courting, um, you know, making sure that you're pure through those times and making sure that you're taking it serious. You know, the issues with, um, as you get further down the line from the original marriage, um, no matter who it is, it just gets tougher and tougher because a lot of times there's un forgiveness that hasn't been given there's unreconciliation that hasn't been taken care of uh, there's a lot of baggage that comes with with some of those so marcus that's a good question um how have you taken care of some of the the baggage that you had in the the previous marriage and uh how are you going to keep those out of the next marriage yeah yeah that's a really good one i mean part of it is what i've already kind of said with writing um one of the things that I've learned in my clinical mental health counseling program is this idea of narrative therapy. That's, so that's one of the many modalities of, of, um, of treatment. And what narrative therapy does is like, Hey, we're going to put your story into context. Um, so with the military, for example, you have these young men who kind of get this call to adventure, right? That's kind of the first step of the hero's journey. Right. And they have this, you know, obviously there are exceptions and they do it for the benefits and whatever, but a lot of, you know, the, that sort of, you know, uh, pure infantryman, I suppose, is like, okay, call to adventure. I know I want to be part of something bigger. This little podunk town I'm in, God bless them. I'm ready to go, you know, to the front lines. Let's do this. And so, and then so they they go down range. They get get their training. They have a mentor. They go through all of the you know crossing of the threshold. This is the the hero's journey sort of steps um, that a lot of movies are kind of based on. And 
then what happens downrange, or what can happen downrange anyway, is encounter with this moral injury. And so what happens there is they kind of feel like they're derailed from a bigger story. And they're, I don't know where to go. I don't know where I am. Um, one thing I've kind of counseled a soldier through before is, yeah, it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know where you've come from. Right. And I made that comment about the that inception moment of like, how did I even get here to begin with? And that's that's why writing or at least telling your story in some way, whether it could be on a podcast, it could be with your your crew of of men that you're around, is so vitally important. Is it, yeah. it it means that I don't have to sort of repress all of that garbage that happened. No, I can form that into something brand new. That is part of my story and I accept it. And it's really difficult to do. And um, there's there's one way of looking at this that I've I've really been doing a lot of thinking about in the context of the warrior story is this idea of integrating your shadow. And so what is the shadow? That's kind of the idea that as a man, you have some type of aggression within you. A lot of the culture tries to basically extinguish that. Like, oh, that's that's toxic. Don't yeah, do that. Exactly. They didn't call it that on D-Day. But anyway, so <laughs> there's, there's this idea that like we need we need boundaried aggression. You need to know what to do with all of the stuff within you that's that's bad or not bad. Uh, that's that's masculine, I guess. And there, there were definitely moments where like, I got so angry, I looked back and I was like, I did not know I was capable of doing that. But right. that's actually there's there's a lot of utility in knowing that you're a monster, because then you can subordinate that monster to Christ. And when I say monster, I'm just like, you know, imagine, imagine the man who picks up the axe to defend his kids. He's, yeah. he's that's integrating the monster, right? Yeah. So it's kind Jordan of like Peterson has a great Jordan Peterson has a great uh, segment on that where he talks about that men need to be monsters, but they need to be controlled. Yep. That's good. Well, there's yeah. something, there's something about that. I think you were alluding to it, Marcus is if you don't, if you don't know you're a monster, you approach things differently. Um, there's a, um, there's a calmness. I know that, you know, I wrestled for so long and I, and I did combat sports. Like there's a calmness around chaos when you've when you've been in that and i'm sure soldiers experience that even on a higher level right there's just a calmness in chaos and i think it's knowing that you're capable knowing that you're a monster and just being like hey i know chaos is around me but it's fine like everything's fine here um when you have an experience that i've watched like that's the videos of the you know the guys on the internet that you see like puffing out their chest like getting crazy over nothing like maybe over like a few words at a bar or like killers don't do that they don't they don't have a, a need to do that no that's true that's good so tell me uh so were you in the military marcus yes and i still am yeah. okay you still are okay what what branch yeah so i was in the uh in the engineers for about four and a half years. So my, okay. my first duty assignment was in Anchorage, Alaska, up at J-Bear, yeah. which is the installation there. And then did a broadening assignment up at Fairbanks, which I believe is the coldest uh, military installation on earth. So that was amazing. Um, it's okay, because I like to cross-country ski. It was a good time. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I transitioned to a reserve unit, which I'm in now. Um, if my facial hair didn't give it away, don't tell my commander. <laughs> You'll so, have it cut before you go back to your next uh, weekend. You'll be all right. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're in Portland, you can just wear a mask all the time and no one seems to. Oh, that's that, funny. That's true, too. That's, that's funny. Uh, 
Uh, I feel sorry for you. Yeah, the Midwest has forgotten what COVID is. So um, I didn't even know what happened. Yeah, I was like, COVID what? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, man, not, I kind of I kind of have a foot in both worlds. So that's kind of that's a. You could say I'm like I'm integrating those two careers right now. Um, it's it's definitely a lot of work, but it's very fulfilling to be able to, like I don't even though I put a uniform on and go and do a job over there, I don't really see myself as that different of a person doing that job there versus kind of when I come back and do my work at mission 22. Right. right. That's great. Yeah. The reason I ask is because I know, I know you do a lot of work with veterans and that's, that's the next area I'd like to go into. And sometimes, you know, your testimony uh, as a Christian, a lot of times will um, be a comfort to those who are going through that currently uh, and you can relate and, you know, like for you, you'll be able to relate to not only veterans, but you'll also be able to, to, to relate to, um, you know, men that are struggling in their marriage. And, and when you're dealing with veterans with combat wounds and combat, uh, PTSD, um, you're having to deal with a lot of that. And I think that that'll help you, uh, especially on down the road. And I'm assuming that it has helped you quite a bit. Uh, now I was in, um, in the army in 1990. I don't even think you were born then, but um, I was uh, uh, 19 Delta out, a cab scout out at uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, the armpit of the world. And, um, you know, I luck, I'm blessed. I don't have any PTSD. I didn't have to worry about it, but I know a lot of my brothers that were uh, in during that time are, do have a lot of PTSD. They do have a lot of struggles and um, are, and I say this lightly because I don't think our government should be taking care of our men, but they need to be taking a better care of our men. And what I mean by that is that I think our church, the church needs to be taking care of the people that are in our community a lot better than what we are. Uh, it used to be that the church was the ones that uh, built the hospitals and built the schools and had the orphanages and, you know, took care of all the the needy and the homeless and all of that. And we've pushed that over into the government side and uh, we can see what they're doing. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about what your organization is doing and who you work for and how it started and um, all that, because I'm, I'm really interested in that. Yeah, for sure. So I'll kind of start with how I got on board with Mission 22. You had asked a question earlier of kind of how I saw God through that season of separation and within probably a month of me finding out what had happened with the with the previous marriage, I got plugged in kind of miraculously with this group of, of men in Portland. Um, there are these guys who are doing what was called or still exists, uh, element fitness, uh, shout out to the element fitness guys, CrossFit Lake Waswego. I see you, um, <laughs> where basically their model was like, Hey, let's do CrossFit for an hour and then we'll have a huddle and like talk about how Christ is working in our lives. And through that, like what I saw were these dudes who just got super real after, like, it's funny how, when you break down the, the facades of physical endurance and strength, then some other facades start to come off too. You know what I mean? And, right. and so it was like, oh my gosh, this is so attractive to me right now. Like in a spiritual way, like I need to be a part of this. And one of the guys that was part of that group was named Magnus Johnson, who's the founder of mission 22. He's a green beret who had three combat deployments and he there was a, there was a moment coming up on 10 years ago now where one of his friends took his own life and he kind of looked around of like, wait a minute, the VA is so well-funded. We've got thousands of veteran nonprofits across the country. And wait a minute, they just put out a statistic where 22 people a day are taking their own lives, veterans. Why, like, why is this 
problem still such a problem? Like we have all of these things, what are we missing? And so our, our mission at the outset is to like really solve this issue. How do we turn in, or how do we transmute the trauma suffered by veterans into the gift to give to the rest of culture? So uh, for, for the listeners, um, the, this idea of the hero's journey, um, think of like Lord of the Rings is a very easy example. There's the whole, you know, there's the naive state of, of the, the Shire. There's the call to adventure. You cross the threshold, right? There's that scene where Sam is like, oh, this is the furthest away I've been from the Shire, Mr. Frodo. And, and then, so there's the, the dark night of the soul, the, the moral injury of Weathertop, where you have the, the puncture wound, um, trauma, by the way, it's ideology is a, a puncture wound. It's the thing that sort of stays with you. Um, even though stuff is healed around it, it never quite goes away. And so the, the kind of fast forwarding to when Frodo returns back to the Shire, he now has this whole gift to give to the rest of his little culture. And his gift was his whole story of telling them like, Hey, there's all of this stuff out there and here's an adventure you can experience too. And it's so important that our veterans are able to tell that and share that and, and reintegrate with the culture. What's crazy is during the Vietnam war, the rates of post-traumatic stress disorder were far, far higher among our service members than were for the Vietnam Vietnamese soldiers. There's a great book called War in the Soul that really goes through all the details here. And the point that the author was making was this, this whole return home journey was not respected in our culture. Because right. you think about like the way in the Old Testament, there, there are all sorts of examples of like the Israelites coming back from war. And it's like, hey, y'all stay outside the camp for a little while, do this sort of purification ritual because you're, you've experienced the trials of combat and then mm -hmm. come integrate with the culture. And the, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, have you guys, uh, you're describing another book uh, that I love called tribe. Have you guys heard of that one? Sebastian younger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he's talking exactly about what you're talking about. We do a horrible job of it here mm -hmm. in the U S you know, and, and Vietnam's a great example of that. I'll let you continue on the story, but yeah, that's get it. Yeah. 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 So it's the, this, this, um, the war on the soul book talks about how when the service member comes home, their soul does not, or some part of them doesn't. And so what we're teaching is, Hey, this is what it looks like to be part of the story again, to get back on board and finally come home. And a lot of that has to do with accepting that you're never going to be the same person again, accepting that a moral injury is a puncture wound. That's never quite going to leave you accepting that the best thing that you can do to get over that past trauma is this process of forgiveness and retelling your story and having faith that choosing Op, or choosing purposeness over nihilism is a better path to go. And that choosing to trust again, even though there's a risk of betrayal is an act of love because love allows the other to choose and going through a moral injury, especially in combat can break away all of these ideas that, that previously, you know, held you together in that first half of life journey. And so what we're teaching at mission 22 is no, there's a way through this. And the way that we do that is through hard exercise. It's through getting your nutrition, right? It's through engaging with others on an online cohort that you're a part of. It's through reading books and putting your story into context and knowing that you're not the only one who's struggling with this stuff. And it gets really deep and really heavy. It's pairing you with a health coach who we call post-traumatic growth facilitators here in mission 22. A health coach is somebody who's kind of the guide by your side. That's that you're not alone going through this. You get hourly calls with that person. It's meditation devices, which actually wire the brain back in a way that reverses to some degree, the 
uh, the wiring that trauma can cause on the brain. So like literally if you meditate, especially using the devices that we have, all the meditation in general will do this too, is it's, it's kind of shifting the direction of the tide in the mind or technically in the brain, um, in, in the reverse direction that trauma does. So it's putting all of these things together in a singular coherent system and helping someone realize like not metaphorically, but actually their return back home in this kind of archetypal story. Mm. Wow. It's so it's so important to do that. Like I, I think what you had mentioned, um, I had two uncles that served in Vietnam, and what they had talked about briefly. They barely talked about the war, but um, I guess my aunts talked about it more. Was just you know society's outcry against their existence. You know, you had soldiers who went to fight a war not by choice. Most of them were drafted, right? And then they came back to a society that yelled and screamed and rejected and and all the above. It's it's a um, you know, you're being ripped from your home, sent overseas, um, by no doing of your own, and then only to brought back, you know, to be brought back to your communities and to be, you know shunned by your own community quite opposite of what you're talking about like man your soul can't come home it it has no opportunity to um you know entering back into the society needs to be done gradually too it just can't be thrown back in all right steve now you gotta get a job he's like, <laughs> like quite literally two weeks ago i was getting shot at and you want me to go work a nine to five how does that, how does that even, how do you deal with that? How do you can well, like compute it's, that? It's not even just the battle part. I mean, if you, most military guys that have been there long enough has spent, you know, 24 seven preparing for war mm -hmm. and that's all they know. They're, they're inundated with it. And the next thing you know, you come out and you're like, well, what do I do now? And that's not include, now. that's yeah. not including the trauma that happened in war, you know, and that's, that's what we're seeing now with, um, a lot of the guys coming back from Afghanistan and um, uh, the Middle East, I mean, they're, they're not being able to cope with all of the stuff that's going on. And, you what know, it's, we call normalcy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, well, and there's nothing normal anymore in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Marcus, take us through. Um, so let's say that I, I'm a soldier um, and I have, I have been on that path where, I just feel like everything's falling apart and um, I need help. What, uh, what is your guys process? How do you guys, uh, you know, just in a nutshell, you don't have to give me every detail, but like what, what would qualify me number one to come and talk to you guys? Um, do you house them in house? Do you outpatient them? Uh, is it doctoral? Do you guys have doctors on staff or clinicians on staff? Or how do you how do you guys do that? So walk us through a process of an intake and then uh, of somebody, you know, getting the help and then um, follow up that you guys do. Certainly. Yeah. So we're, we're not a clinical program per se, and that's on okay. purpose. So the current paradigm is basically, oh, send the veteran to the, go see counseling, go see the counselor, go see the counselor, go see the therapist, get your medication, see the psychiatrist, get your medications adjusted, this and that. Uh, so we're trying to reverse that. So it's like, no, first off, we're going to work on all of those components that I mentioned before, your nutrition, your movement, your lifestyle, getting out in the sun, having a health coach, that's going to be primary. And then we'll have a, have a sort of clinical mental health counselor in-house that we can sort of refer you to. 
So the, the counselor then kind of plays more like a, you know, changing the tires and the pit crew, whereas everything else is you zooming around the track. And so right. the way that somebody would apply, just go to our website, mission22.com. Uh, hopefully it'll be in y'all's show notes. Um, and there's, uh, yep. the program is called recovery and resiliency. There's an application there where you can go through and there are a couple of screening questions. If someone's an active addiction, we are not an addiction treatment type of a program. If someone is actively suicidal, we're not a crisis line. Um, and if you're currently in an inpatient program for something else, it's probably not the best time for it. Um, just because there is going to be a lot, it's, it's fairly demanding. There are, there are a lot right. of things that you're going to be asked to do, but you will get out what you put in. And so if, if you've been sober for over 30 days, if you're uh, not in another inpatient program and you're, if you have had any kind of psychiatric diagnoses you know, on the schizophrenic spectrum. So th these are actually quite standard, um, kind of, um, screening questions that many other programs go through. So yeah, if you, if you, think especially that, if you're not, not clinical. Yeah. 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 You could do it that way. Um, right. there are a couple of provisions of if you're being seen currently for some other things, but for the most part, it's, it's pretty open to any veteran and spouses of veterans. We also have a program for them too. Um, so there's a pretty simple application process. There's, there's a, a little article you'll read. There's a very short essay that you'll write. Don't worry. We're not English teachers. We're not going to grade on grammar. Um, and then you'll get scheduled with one of our in-house operators who will, who will have a chat with you and kind of see where you're at and see what's best for you and kind of move on from there. Wow. That's awesome. How many, um, how many men do you guys currently have in house? In terms of those in the program or right. in the, the program? Yes. We're coming up on a little over a hundred graduates. Currently, I believe there are about between 50 and 60 who are active in the program. And we're, we're looking to grow that exponentially in the near future. Wow. That, that is great. And so is, uh, is Oregon the only place that you guys have a location? It is, but we are very decentralized. So you don't have to be in Oregon to participate. So it's a decentralized right. platform. The recovery and resiliency program was kind of designed to be that way even before COVID happened. So it actually worked out pretty well where we just send you stuff in the box and then the individual, it's up to the individual to take personal responsibility for all of the resources within that box and to put them to best use. So right. the only thing that would be local would be like the community-based gym that you decide to join. Now, okay. It, we would like to do some more stuff locally and we're, we are kind of moving in that direction. Um, but this is kind of where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. I saw that you guys do a lot of technology with everything from, you know, GPS trackers on their wrist to, uh, calming, uh, meditation, uh, headphones and, you know, heart rhythm checkers and all that kind of stuff. How does that integrate into, uh, the whole system? Yeah, good question. So what, another one of the things that we're trying to do is how do we, is there a way that we could somehow tie ancient mythology with heart rate variability on the watch? Um, I'd like to think that we have, there's a program called Elements that's free for anyone uh, who wants to check that out. There's some, there's some good content there that really kind of wraps all these things together, both on, on terms of ancient mythology and modern science. But the way, the, one of the reasons that we have these devices in there is, you know, imagine you have um, some, you know, rough and tumble 20 year old who went to war, came back, and now somebody's teaching them meditate. Isn't that some like weird old <laughs> thing that you do or whatever. And so it's like, okay, cool. Um, suspend disbelief for just a moment, but Hey, check this out on your watch. There's a thing that uh, shows your stress score and yeah. if you're constantly stressed. You can see in real time. It's kind of a window into your physiology 
of what's going on with your nervous system. And hey, check it out. When you do the breathing techniques that we're teaching, when you do the meditation device thing that we've, we've got for you, you can watch it go down. So we talked about this idea of becoming all things to all people. How does the modern mind think? It thinks in very scientific terms. Okay, cool. So we're going to give you a device that shows you in a scientific term what's happening in your body when you reconnect with the story, with a narrative world that isn't so scientific, but is something that you have to have if you're going to reconnect yourself with the truth. Got it. Now, is this, um, is there, in, is it Christian based? Is it just um, secular based? Uh, what, what is your, what is your, as a Christian, like, what, what, what are you guys pulling from, from that? Or is it all just self-help? Um, how are you guys going about that? Yeah. So I'll put it to you this way. Whenever Christ was speaking to an audience that wasn't, you know, Christian or, or Christ followers at the time, he used parables, right? He used these stories and parables right. are something where it's the truth that comes in through the back door. And so that's kind of how we, we approach this. So on the one hand, you can't do it without God. It's just, it's not going to happen if you don't have God. On the other hand, I'm not your pastor and I'm not going to be the one that like tells you, you need to be a Baptist now, or you need to convert to Christianity for this program to work. It's not quite that, but what it is, is following God's design, whatever that design is, inviting people into that design, into that rhythm of what is it to live a good life after having endured a moral injury. And so there, one of the things, and this kind of opens up a whole um, body of, of, of work that we've done in terms of, uh, well, if you registered for elements and read through all that, you can kind of see what we're talking about. But what I'm trying to do is find patterns among many spiritual traditions of like, what were they getting at? And one of the things that I, one of the conclusions I've come to is, you know, there are so many similarities and this is one of the criticisms leveled at Christianity of like, oh, well, those, those old religions, they were just borrowing from others. Well, not quite. They were speaking to those others directly. So the others kind of had this story. Uh, you mentioned Jordan Peterson before. He talks a lot about the the myth of Marduk, right? And the Babylonian myths right. and, and Tiamat and and these whole cosmologies. And as, as I'm considering the patterns there, it's like, wait a minute. They actually, they're onto something. Now, they didn't have Christ, which is something missing, obviously. But this idea of like, it's the, it's the sun figure who can see and speak truth. Hmm, where have I heard that before? There's a sword which divides things up. This is a this is a really cool thing that I learned in, in this whole journey. The word demonstrate means to de-monster. It means to take the monster apart with the words. Right. And it comes out of Christ's mouth and revelation as a sword. Your words are speaking the truth is a demonstration. When mm. you speak the truth, you're demonstrating something. You're taking apart That's the pieces good. of the thing. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. That's Tiamat. That's exactly what Marduk does to Tiamat. Whoa. And so what I'm doing in the program, what the team is doing in the program is hey, look at all of these patterns and then look and kind of invite you to like consider where else have we seen this? There is one of the, we have a lot of books in the program that equate to about one book per month. There is one that it's called, when, let's see, what's it called? Uh, the Art of Forgiving, When You Need to Forgive and Don't yeah, Know How right. Lewis Needs. Great, like excellent book on forgiving. And he pulls no punches about like, look, this there, God's involved here. Um, I'm going to give you a practical demonstration of why forgiving is good just generally for you know, good interaction with your fellow man, but it's, you know, it's because God, um, but I'm not right. going to tell you like what religion to join. I'm not, you know, so that's kind of the approach that we take. Now, if I have a participant within the program who I'm coaching and they bring that to the table and they're like, Hey, you know, one of my coping devices is through prayer. Um, and right. I go to Christian church. Cool. I'll meet you there and I can meet you there. 
Or if I have someone else who's kind of like, ah, I kind of hate the church. I'm an atheist, this and that, but I'm here for healing. Cool. Right. I'm so glad you're here. Um, let's, let's see what kind of, um, what, where we can go with that. So does that answer your question? I kind of went all over. It does. That. Yeah, totally. No, that's good. I, I always like to ask because I know, I know sometimes, you know, for me, anything that I would do personally would be Christian, you know, but you're also segmenting yourself once you do that to specific people. Um, and unfortunately, all of our veterans need help, you yeah. know, whether they're lost or they're Christian. And I think that's a, a great way of going about that and in, in, in trying to get there. Um, it's almost a callback to, you know, what you had mentioned at the beginning, uh, Marcus was a call to Paul, you know, um, when I'm with the Romans, I do as the Romans do, you know, um, and I know culturally speaking, he's, he's kind of, um, alluding to the different sects of Christianity, um, as he was writing those letters, but, um, I take a very Calvinistic approach to, uh, the gospel to begin with. And so, you know, I, I think that's wonderful that you're, you're leaving it open-ended because there's, you know, uh, I'm, I'm of the mindset that God doesn't need us to save anybody. You know, if he needed us, then Christ's work wasn't done. You know, he, he doesn't need us for anything. We get to help. And it's awesome that we get to help in any capacity. Um, and so, yeah, man, I'm, I'm loving it. It's open to, to everybody that's legit. Yeah. And one of the issues that we see with the, the counseling realm at large Obviously there are exceptions, but there is kind of this tendency of like the counselor is your savior, go there and they'll fix you. And right. I just, uh, yeah, whether or not that's actually what the counselor thinks, that's kind of how they're perceived, at least among the veteran community. There's a really good book called warrior by Dr. Shauna Springer that kind of gets through some of these, these specifics, but yeah, it's, it's just sort of this idea of like, I, I don't know about those clinicians. Like they're, they seem like they know everything. And so I'll give an example. One of the uh, classes that Magnus took the, the mission 22 founder, he went to this university in near Portland. And for one of his classes, he created a survey that a potential future veteran client might fill out ahead of a counseling session. And so these students who were becoming counselors were given the, this, this test. And so the idea is like, place yourself in the client's shoes, who's the veteran who's been to war and answers these questions. And so the questions were things like, you know, um, I think about violence. Or um, I've, you know, the thought of being in combat excites me or, some, or something like that. And so they got almost all of the questions wrong. Um, and so it's this idea of like, oh, you think about violence, you, a soldier, an 11 Bravo, you think about shooting people. Oh, we need to fix you. Like, okay. yeah. They've just been trained for four years to, to kill people. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is great. So you're, you're, you're going through and getting your master's right now. Um, and, uh, in, in psychology, is that what you said? Clinical psychology, uh, clinical mental health counseling, yep. clinical, cl okay. Clinical mental health counseling. That's even better. So let me ask you that, um, after the craziness, and it sounds like you guys are still going through the craziness, craziness of the pandemic. You know, one of the things I'm seeing as a pastor is that, um, I personally don't feel that we've seen all the damage that COVID has done. I think the mental state that is happening, um, not only with suicides, but drug and, you know, drug usage is, is, is increasing. Prescription drugs is increasing. Psychedelics are increasing. Um, people's lack of hope and, 
Uh, their fear is just, just increasing. And um, there's a mental state right now that um, I haven't seen in my lifetime. Um, and I, I do believe it's going to get worse, you know, especially, you know, the, the little counseling that I do typically mine's, you know, marriage counseling or, you know, just spiritual counseling. It's not a lot of this mental stuff. What are you seeing and what do you think you'll see in the future um, uh, with mental illness? Yeah. So we kind of are building a program that we believe is a response to this. And the program wasn't initiated during that time as a response, but I kind of see it as something bigger. Um, and so one of the things that the team's really pouring into this program is how can veterans then be the teachers of everyone else? Right. And how can we invite everyone else into the same pattern? That's and called discipleship. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> uh, you know, based off scripture. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, if, if the veteran can come home, so to speak, can they teach everyone else to come home? So what right. does that mean? It means you have something much bigger that you need to live for. And it's real. And it's, I think for a lot of people, it was shattered and broken. The, the tenuous worldview that they already had when suddenly all of the structures of normal work life were removed from them, right. um, then, then there was what, what was left. It's like, oh man, there's, there's less of me than I thought there was. But what we're trying to, to show is like, no, there's a lot more of you than there is. And how do we activate that? And so I think having, I think coaching is uh, health coaching as a field is really gaining traction. That was the, when I came to mission 22 to begin with, I pitched myself as the health coach. Um, right. There's, there are a lot of programs out there that are, that are really good for health coaching. So having someone who's non-clinical, but someone who is like on your side, Jordan Peterson has that chapter in your, in his book, uh, 12 rules for life. He talks about um, surround yourself with people who want the best for you. Right. And for people who find solace and isolation during that time, like isolation is such a, such a wicked, um, just spiral where it's like, mm -hmm. I feel anxious. I feel better when I isolate, but then isolation makes me feel more anxious and on and, and on and on. So the future of mental health, it has a lot to do with first off, can you get to a point where you can talk to someone for one hour per week? Right. And it doesn't have to be the counselor. Right. It can just be a coach who invites you into, Hey, what is, what is your ideal health look like? And, and start asking these questions and it, it being very client led. Um, I think there's, I'm a little biased cause I've been doing this for a while, but the CrossFit model is actually a very good uh, model to get people out. And like, it was originally founded to combat chronic disease. Right. Um, I think the future of mental health too has to quit being so siloed. I think we need more expert generalists who can connect the dots between a bunch of different patterns. So how often does a psychiatrist talk about, Hey, how much sunlight are you getting? You know, mm -hmm. how much, how much aerobic exercise are you getting? How often are you exercising with other people? Good. Like, do they ever ask those questions? Maybe there are a few out there that do awesome. If you're right. a psychiatrist and you ask that good on you. Um, but then it's also like, well, okay, what is your gut brain access connection look like nutritionally speaking? Do we talk about that? Like, and so it, you know, I can talk all night about like all of these different <laughs> silos that need to be connected and integrated. And that's right. precisely what we're doing here, or at least that's what we're attempting to do. And, um, and so, yeah, I think the future of mental health really needs to consider all of these factors all at once, instead of just isolating it to a diagnosis and here's a pill. So I noticed you, you do use fitness in your recovery for your veterans as well. Um, do you see that being a big beneficial part of their uh, mental status or state, I should say? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, we know yeah. that 
hard exercise is more is far more effective uh, an antidote to depression than any SSRIs, your your antidepressants. And it's, so what is exercise, right? It's putting yourself in a highly stressful situation and then seeing that your body can recover, right? right? It's practicing stress so that your body is better able to handle stress everywhere else. So by, by kind of fighting your dragons at the gym, it generalizes so that you can fight them elsewhere. Right. Oh, well, that's good. I was listening to, uh, I think it was, I don't know what episode it was, but I was listening to Rogan. He was talking about one of his friends who got put on antidepressants. Um, and I think he was, uh, I don't know if he was an ex-military guy, but he was pretty messed up. Um, and then realized that the dependency of those pills, um, wasn't healthy, you know, just had the insight to do that, um, picked up jujitsu and started as he started getting more and more into jujitsu, started weaning himself off of the antidepressants. And, um, basically the jujitsu ended up taking over as the supplement, meaning that exercise that you're talking about, those endorphins that we get hit with. Um, it's like the runner's high. If I'm, if I'm feeling low, my inclination is to lay in bed, but I've done enough physical exercise to know that I feel better if I go work out. And so you have to, you know, once you experience that, um, and you, and you put that in your tool belt, you had mentioned that, you know, they, we have this tool belt for you, um, to kind of get you healthy. It's such a powerful weapon to use exercise in the correct way to, to deal with your, you know, mental capacity to deal with anxiety and stress and all the above. Yeah, absolutely. So Marcus, I, in your bio, you talked to, you're an ultra athlete. What does that, what does that mean? Or or did it say ultra athlete? Like ultra miles? Yeah. um, Well, Mick ultra back in the college days, but. um, Okay. Mick ultra. (laughs) Man, you were rich. Uh, Holy cow. I was too poor to have that. Yes. I guess that's what we drink. Well, that was always the beer that they were like, oh, this is what the athletes drink. It's, you know, or whatever. Good, healthy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When I was in college, I was, uh, I kind of caught the bug of ultra running. I think that's the only way to put it because it can be kind of infectious and possibly, you know, negatively impact your health if you do it for too long. Actually, I was listening to a podcast, Trail Runner Nation. Shout out to those guys um, on, this, this uh, gal they had on did some research on, uh, what was it? It was prevalence of mental illness gradated out by number of hours per week tr- spent training. And there was a uh, kind of an upward slope, but anyway, that's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, but yes. Um, go back to the, <laughs> does it go back to the other side though? If you do too much, uh, well, think- you can speak to the Olympians to that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're saying that, um, it shows, a a discrepancy, like the more mentally, um, messed up you are the more apt you are to you like just be a crazy person when it comes to doing stuff like that is that what you're alluding to alluding to well there there are addicts who have turned to ultra running and like it fits personality um so i I got yeah i've got a buddy of mine who um was a heroin addict and um he went from a heroin addict to ultra ultra runner and i'm not kidding he like he's running um uh, you know, 150 miles, you know, not even thinking twice about it now. Um, you yeah, know, for those who within, are, who are listening, like crazy, can you guys explain what ultra running is just so people understand like what we're yeah. talking, we're not talking about like running real fast. No, explain but, what that is. 
Yeah, it's basically any distance that's longer than a marathon. Typically, your sort of short ultras will be a 50K, which is about 31 miles. And they can, it gets from, that's kind of the low extreme to the the most extreme would be races like the Berkeley Marathons. And that's that's a legendary race in the woods of Tennessee where they, like, it's the race that eats its young where you, it's, it's over 100 miles with um, about 60,000 feet of elevation gain through unmarked trail. So it's like, it's everything in between. Um, and then you've got much longer races like the Moab 240. Um, and it seems like people just aren't content with 50Ks anymore. But for the time being, uh, 50K kind of works for me all right. I've got two on the calendar later this month's, uh, year. Um, I did a lot of, um, I was on the US military endurance sports team for a while and wow. on there for about six seasons or so. Um, but ultra running was kind of my first love, but now I'm, I've been kind of doing some CrossFit and ultra running. So I've got some biceps and can run far, but whether I can actually <laughs> run far fast. Uh, so I'm kind so now of, you look, now you look good while you're running. Yeah, exactly. That's the big difference. It's like, what's up? Yeah. yeah my, <laughs> my buddy's name is Jacob both. And, um, he had, he has a great testimony of just, uh, you know, grew up a pastor son and, uh, his dad is one of my best friends and um, Jeff Oath has a men's ministry called Cave Time. And I've just watched this kid go from his family, just forget about him to now he's married and uh, has kids and he does these ultrathons. And um, I mean, he ran one in the woods and, you know, it was a hundred miles and uh, ended up getting like the record of the course or something like that. He's just a freak of nature. And uh, he and his cousin ran, um, there's one in Colorado where they actually run a marathon um, up and back a mountain. So it's like, you know, eight or nine miles up and eight or nine miles back. And they just do that for 32 miles. Um, and they're running in a marathon like that. And it's steep hills too. So uh, I, I know exactly what you're doing. So how did you get started in that? You said you started in college? Yeah. So the origin story of me doing athletic stuff was after several attempts. At, so I mentioned I lived in London and, right. you know, I was that, you know, everybody plays soccer um, and I played soccer a good bit growing up and I was never really great at the ball sports, but there was one fateful run on the beach back in 2007, where we were down in Panama. Was it Panama? It was Pensacola, Pensacola city beach, Pensacola beach. Anyway, so we were on the beach and it was after a very long day that, where we, we took the ferry into town and then my dad decides like, oh, it's not that far of a walk back to the condo. It was that far of a walk back to the condo, but nevertheless. <laughs> uh, so the sun's setting, it's getting late. And uh, you know, it's just me and my brother kind of up front and they're behind us. And he takes off his flip-flops. He's like, hey, let's run. It's like, run. Uh -huh. Okay. And so not to be outdone, he's three and a half years older than me. I, you know, uh, it was like, okay, I'll chase you. And so we just started running and then not, a month later, I started the second half of high school at Grissom High in Huntsville, Alabama, and joined the junior ROTC military skills team. Because the moment I saw camouflage, it was like, I need, I need to be part of that. Right. I'm in. <laughs> I can't even see those dudes. <laughs> and so we had like a week of kind of weed out workouts to see like who really had it, like who wants to stay. And I don't know, guys, there was something that was just lit up in me that was like, I need to do this. And we had our first like uh, mile and a half run in the the September summer of of North Alabama, and man, it was just like I can do this. I can actually do this. This is pretty cool. And there was a race in that area called M the Mountain Mist 50K, 
and it has this whole aura around it. It has this whole culture. People have the tattoos. You have to wow. sign up to get in. And I participated in that. I think the first time was 2009. And that was my first 50K. And that like that de- that sealed the deal for me. I was like, this is the coolest sport. Um, you get to, for me, going out to the trail and just experiencing single track trail for a long period of time, it's just like my body's communicating with nature. I'm, I'm experiencing everything it is for me to be a human out here on the trail, the camaraderie, the, the pain and the agony. Um, I eventually ran a hundred mile race, um, from Heflin to, to Silicaga, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with these town names, uh, <laughs> called Hody 100. I did that in 2010 as a 20 year old. And the, one of the things that hundred milers are called is life in a day. And so it's, it really wow. was. It was, it's, it's a legendary thing to experience where it's like, when you finish, like I saw the sunrise twice and never sat down. What was I thinking? Um, yeah. And, uh, when I got to college, I learned about the triathlon team, a bit of an injury got me doing things that were less running focused. So did that for a while. And, um, fast forward to today, I'm, I'm over that injury. Thank God it was a long journey. It's a whole nother story, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm racing, uh, Orcas Island 50 K here in like three weeks. So that'll be the first one I've done in about two and a half years. Praise God. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah. I, uh, I tell people during, uh, COVID when they shut everything down, I was going to come out looking like Brad Pitt in the fight club and, you know, like Charles Spurgeon as a theologian. And I think I finished Netflix. That's all I ended up doing. <laughs> the opposite <laughs> happened. I did the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Now we were only shut down for five or six weeks, but uh, it felt like a lifetime. So, but, um, well, Marcus, what else, uh, is there anything we missed? Anything you'd like the audience to know what's coming up, what's going on? Um, how can they reach your, how can they get your book? Yeah. So my book is on no less faithful It's available on Amazon and Kindle and print. And I guess what I would encourage everyone here is that don't wait for some like specific ministry to call to you. If it's like, um, oh man, I just wish my church had this for this type of a thing. I think the thing that's most important is like have a core four of dudes that you can regularly meet with. Um, there was a time where, um, when I, I mentioned I'd moved to Portland and thank God, like I had a group of men kind of ready made for me. I do not know what I would have, like, I would have lost my mind if I didn't have some text thread of a guy of guys, like, like all through COVID, it was like, we are meeting every Saturday, even if we have to space a hundred feet apart, we're going to the football field, we're throwing down some weight and you're going to be there. Right. Like I needed that so bad. And I don't know what I would have done without it. And so if you are without that, like make that an absolute priority to get in your life. It is not optional. I would submit that for good health and longevity, some type of exercise program isn't optional either, Uh, whatever that is for you. Um, you know, it's your mileage will vary, but the point is like do hard things often with other men. And if that's not on your calendar, like that's, that's like step one of what it means to be a man in this world. Like everything else I think will, will kind of flow from that. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to the difficulty that some will have in their churches of like, man, I just, I don't see any of these men that were, that would be interested in that. But I think, you know, well, if that's the case, start it, you be the one right. like, tag, you're it like, Hey, what? why don't we go on a camping trip? Why doesn't anybody start up a camping trip? Cool. Start, organize it, put the invite out, talk to the pastor. Like I, you know, how many pastors would be stoked if somebody raised their hand and like, Hey, I would love to go just go. Like, I don't need to be, you know, here I am as, as a member of this church, maybe not theologically, you know, I haven't been to seminary or whatever, but I got a pretty sweet rig and some paddle boards. Awesome. Go do that. 
right? right? We need more of that. Like get out, get in the sun, do it with your brothers, get sunburned, you know, eat, you know, find, find some kind of organ meat, eat a raw heart or something. I don't know. Go out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> liver king. Yeah. It's <laughs> liver king. It, well, that is so incredibly important. I think I've mentioned this, um, this quote or this, um, this series of books many times on the show, John Eldridge, you know, the church has done a very good job of making weak men sitting in the pews, not knowing what it's like to be men, not knowing what that path looks like. And, you know, I have friends who are, who are followers who sit in churches all over the U S and they express what you just said, Marcus is I'm looking around my church body and I don't see, I don't see anybody I want to go to war with. If stuff hit the fan, um, I wouldn't go looking here for any assistance or help. You know, there's some scary men that I know, you know, outside of this, <laughs> in my local gym, I might call them, uh, but we, you know, we haven't done a, a good job of that, but you have to be that person. You have to be that uh, person who steps up and says, okay, we're going to go paddleboarding. Okay. We're going to go um, backpacking. Um, we're going to go spend some time in the wilderness. We're going to, I mean, that's such great advice because it is incredibly um necessary to do as men you have to you have to build that group yeah for sure and there when so there's a race series called tough mutter or it's a it's a company that some yeah. of you have heard of it it's like this you know outdoor obstacle course race one of the smartest things their their marketing team ever did was we're going to give away free race photos and we're going to take those photos right as you're jumping over fire and you're at your muddiest uh, yeah. Right. And that's perfect. Cause like the office worker will happily put that up on all of their social media right. and advertise, like free advertising. And yeah. what is up with that? Well, it's kind of obvious. Like we are designed to go out and get dirty and jump through fire. Right. Like that calls to us, like to like, you're, you're smiling right now. It's like, of course yeah. that's what we do. And I, I think it's hard to underestimate just how hungry other men in the church are for that. If yeah. someone just said, Hey, let's go cook meat over a fire and catch fish. Oh, thank God. Somebody said it. Someone actually yeah. said it. It's so simple. <laughs> yeah. That's great advice, um, Marcus. I, I like that. You know, I think that's where, um, you know, life is just so busy right now with uh, everybody and with family, with kids, with work, with, you know, every, you know, everybody learning to everybody saying yes and started saying no. And I'm, I'm preaching to the crowd, the choir right now, because I, I do the same thing. And uh, we tend to put those things aside, you know, and it needs to be, you know, God, family, you know, and then your personal, um, health and, and just your camaraderie and the servitude in the church and all of that. Like it just needs to be done a lot more than what we're doing. And I appreciate that advice. That's really good advice. So, so lastly, before, you know, um, we do our niceties and, and, uh, close it out here, which it feels like we're heading that direction. Where can they find, so I, I shared the book, a website in the chat. And so people have access to that. Um, please go check it out, show some support. Um, one of the other things is where can they, can they find you on any social or follow your story or, um, connect with you in those ways? Yeah. My Instagram is at ultra run Ferris, U L T R A R U N. And then my last name with an A, not like Ferris Bueller. Um, and then, yeah, that's, that's really the only social media I do a whole lot with, but mission 22 okay. has, has its TikTok. It's got, 
um, our Instagram page and our Facebook page. You can find out what we're, what we're up to there. We have events in terms of mission 22 events nationwide. There's a calendar that you can find on our website to see if there's an event near you, if this is something that you'd be interested in doing. We also have an ambassadors page. And so if this is the type of service that interests you, whether you're a veteran or not, then that's, that's a great way to give back too. And uh, if there's anyone here in central Oregon or, or kind of in the state, we, we could totally use some, some uh, ambassador leadership here too. So would highly Thank encourage you. you to do that. You could, you could swing by the office. We could hang out. Um, yeah, that's, those would be the best places to find us. Awesome. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, I, it was good to meet you and great to hear your story and, uh, we'll be praying for you and, uh, um, and your ministry, uh, through the book. I pray that it just reaches people that, uh, are dire, dire need. Uh, we will be posting this on our social media. Uh, we have a, a private group that has 50,000 members in it that you wouldn't believe how many, um, and it's all men. And you wouldn't believe how many posts there are about pray for my marriage. And I need this. I need that, you know, for my marriage or I'm getting a divorce or I'm separated. And it just goes on and on and on. And uh, we realize that we need to, to help them out as much as possible. And hopefully this book can do that. And I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And one last thing I would say, too, is if, if you are in a season of separation or divorce or, or something like that, and you're feeling the worst that you've probably ever felt in your entire life. It's normal to feel that way. Right. Don't feel bad for feeling awful about the situation, right? And by definition, a crisis season is temporary. And in Chinese, the word crisis means danger and opportunity. So just remember that like, if, if God could have used this kid and his silly decisions with marriage and the, the fallout from the divorce to turn me into what I am now, he can do it with anyone. Oh, praise God. Good word, brother. Well, man, it was so good to meet you. Uh, we'll be praying for you, like I said, and uh, we just hope that you continue to do what you need to, especially up in that crazy country that you live in, uh, in Portland, Oregon. Um, I keep waiting for them to separate from the United States, but they haven't yet. between them and Seattle, just take off and go off in California. But uh, we'll be praying for you. You're doing a great work there and uh, keep it up. And uh, uh, we love you, man. And take it easy. Appreciate you guys. It was a lot of fun. God bless, man. You've been listening to the Man Up God's Way podcast. Visit us on Facebook, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, and our website at manupgodsway.org.